thumb of, no, actually it's a delight to see all of your faces from the nose up, um, but it's a special delight to see some that we haven't had a chance to, to connect with in months. So thank you guys again for, for being here, for venturing out. For some, it's a bigger step of faith than for others, but however you got here, we're grateful. You guys at home, we miss you. Can't wait for this room to be filled with your voices and your hearts and rejoicing with us. Uh, hopefully you can be here next week if you weren't able to come out just yet. All right, well, could you guys turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13? We are back in the book of Corinthians as Evan took us back to chapter 12. And um, I just thought how interesting of the Lord to have the timing of us venturing back into chapter 13. Those of you guys who have been around the Bible a little bit would know chapter 13 is the famous love chapter of the Bible. And so here we are probably in a time period where the world doesn't, can't remember when it has felt this hateful that we are going to open up the Bible and study the love chapter. Uh, It's timely, it's helpful uh, that God's going to clarify some things. Let me just say this on our way into the angle that we're taking on this first message. It's going to be a little bit of a mini-series that we'll be doing for a few weeks in this chapter. Um, but I'm aware just, you know, I, I'm, as, as a pastor who is, is traveling through life and traveling through the world with you, uh, you know, I'm aware of our environment. I think that's, that's part of what we're supposed to be doing as shepherds, to be paying attention to the things that are affecting you and affecting your faith and tempting you and creating struggles and um, our world has become very complicated. Uh, actually, it's always been complicated. It's just thrust some issues into the forefront of our lives in ways that, that need answers and need interaction from us. And, and, and what might that interaction look like? What, what are you doing to interact with this moment? And what should be done? There's a lot of noise out there in these categories. And so I, I would, I'm just going to say this, this is not part of the message, but it, it'll let you understand why this sits in this moment the way it does. Um, if, I, if I were to set three priorities, this is my personal, the way I'm approaching our, our hour, our moment. And, and I were to say, Keith, what are the three priorities that, that you need to be paying attention to right now in all that's happening in the world? Uh, I would say priority number one would be prayer. I have access to the throne of God's grace. I've been tempted to do a message on how prayer is protest uh, because there is a massive part of what prayer is, is that I take my concerns and my issues to the highest court and I stand before that court and I complain, I seek, I ask, I appeal before that throne. So that would be my number one priority. My second priority would be to realize the unique place that we have as a church in being an alternative community in this world. So there is a community out there. There is a world out there that's doing life. This place is an alternative community to the world that's out there. And very much what we're going to talk about today is linked to that second priority. The third priority would be a biblical priority of social justice. The Bible does actually call on the people of God to interact with the fallenness of our world and to bring to that world righteously defined social justice in ways that we can actually make a difference in people's lives. So I think all those are priorities, and some people would have those priorities in different order for them. 
not trying to debate what your priorities are. Mine. These would be mine. Um, and th- this morning, I'm going to touch on that second one, but I, I just happen to be doing it from the standpoint of 1 Corinthians 13, this chapter that defines and draws our attention to love in a way that, well, we just need it, period. The church needs it. We need it relationally. Love is a massively important thing in our lives. It probably tends to outweigh all kinds of other factors to us. So in this moment, right, the, the, the tumultuous times of the 60s were, were, were met by love songs. I mean, you guys go back and think about the Beatles writing songs about love. You know, all you need is love and just, you know, love, 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 just love with, you know, love is the answer. I forgot what, you know, light of the world shine on me, love is the answer. I mean, just, just endless songs that, you know, what would fix all this is love. Okay, um, I like a piece of that. So we're going to need to pay attention to love. But for us, this love story that we're going to go through in the next few weeks starts in part one here in a title I'm calling A Community Like No Other. And so follow me. Love stories usually start in some faraway land once upon a time. So once upon a time, there was a place, a remarkably different place. A place where people were patient and kind to each other. Where the attitudes of their hearts weren't self-consumed, proud, and territorial. Where you didn't have to be like them to be loved by them. A place not characterized by irritation or resentment or record-keeping of past wrongs. It was a place where people weren't indifferent to wrongs and where they rejoiced with you about all that was true. It was a place where anything and everything that could happen would be met by relationships that could bear the heaviest load, that keep believing even in the darkest moments and where hope always endured. That place was called the church, according to 1 Corinthians 13. I told you to turn to 1 Corinthians 13, but I'm not going to let you read from 1 Corinthians 13 today. But you just read from 1 Corinthians 13. Paul is interested in connecting to his, this community in Corinth in an hour of need. And ours is a massive hour of need, isn't it? Once upon a time, stories often feel like they're way over there in another place and not really going to happen. And all you got to do is go outside the doors here today and pick up the news and watch what's happening. And you will find a world where this once upon a time isn't happening, right? Our world has once again testified and gone on record that it is not this place that we just read about. It is rather a place where people are territorial. They have their own reasons for their personal loyalties. And where these differences become a cauldron where separation, inequality, self-interest, and hate can boil into a segmented society of haves and have-nots, of like and difference, 
of preferential treatment and open hostility. <clears throat> that was what the news sounded like just last night. Now, let me make clear, especially to those who are watching and not here today, maybe you're tuning in, you're not even a part of Lakeview, we just happen to be watching what we're doing today. Um, I'm not a politician, I'm not running for office, I'm not trying to represent some viewpoint out there. I'm a pastor. I'm a pastor of this place here, not of way over there, not of people I don't know, not of the entire universe, not of the earth. I'm I'm a pastor of this place, this place, the kingdom of God represented here in this place. It's a different place than what's out there. We operate on a different set of ideas than what's out there. St. Augustine described what he called the city of God set amongst the city of earth. And that's what we are, right? We're the city of God who is set amongst the city of earth. We're a city of refuge, if you will. And it's interesting, the description of these two places of earth's city and God's city. One writer says, these two states, from Augustine's writing, have been created by two different sets of affections. The earthly by the love of self to the contempt of God. The heavenly by the love of God to the contempt of self. That one glories in self. This one glories in God. It's a different place than what's out there. And when Paul is addressing the Corinthians, but we, we get to chapter 13 Paul's been addressing a church that's, that's dividing, that's coming apart, that's finding reasons not to be together with each other. He started chapter one talking about divisions, and he raised multiple issues getting to chapter 13, talking about what divides us. That still needs to be heard today, doesn't it? We are a church set in a world that's creating divisive pressures on who will we be? as a church. Now I'm going to do the same thing the apostle Paul does here. And there's something very wise and helpful to be learned by the fact that Paul doesn't get to the subject of love extensively for 12 chapters, 12 chapters. You'd have thought he could have just gone from, I heard brothers that there are divisions among you. And I believe that all you need is love. And he ripped out a guitar and he and Paul sat down and sang to the Corinthians and fixed it all. But apparently By the time you're going to get to chapter 13 and and do an experience and walk in this love that gets described there, you're going to need a bunch of theology along the way. So can I just break some interesting news to a world that loves the word love? You cannot make a beeline to the word love. You don't do it in scripture. Along the way, you're going to need to pick certain things up so that when you arrive at that word love, it actually means what it's supposed to mean. And it actually can function in our lives in a way that it's supposed to function. Right? That, that's what theology does to us. And that's the great danger of living in a world that's an information age, but not a theological age. You are going to encounter information that is theologically inept. And then you're going to be asked to feel a certain way about the topic, to think a certain way about the topic. But you're God's people. You're never called to stare out at the world 
in theological bankruptcy and see if you can figure out what to do with the problem. All right, so I'll take a side issue here because I want to spend a lot of time addressing the current issue that's in our day. And love is a massive response and need in this hour. But in the same way, I'll just say this briefly, in the same way you can't take a beeline to the word love, you can't take a beeline to the word racism either. You can't just run straight to that word. Theologically, you're going to need some other things on your way there to have a discussion that sounds like what God sounds like, right? You can't come to an accurate discussion on racism if you don't take the theology of sin with you and you don't take the theology of evil with you. I don't hear a lot of that in our discussion today, out there. But in here, there's lots to say. All right, I tricked you. We're actually not going to be in Corinthians 13, although we will be there next week. I'm going to model this thought that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 13 from Colossians chapter 3. So if you're in the neighborhood there, just turn a few books over to Colossians chapter 3. Because what Paul does here in a brief passage, he does in 1 Corinthians 13 chapters worth. He takes us on a tour of the landscape before he gets to love. And he says, okay, church, now put this on. Well, he does it real briefly here. So this is going to be helpful for us to see how do we go about putting on love in such times and as a pattern of our lives. All right, so if you're there in chapter 3, the... the verse we want to get to is verse 14, where Paul says to the church then, as he does now, above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. But that's not where Paul starts. He doesn't start Corinthians in chapter 13. He doesn't start Colossians chapter 3, verse 14 there either. He starts a few verses earlier. These are things needed for us to love the way the Bible describes love. So back up to verse 1 in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. And we're going to take these verses apart a little bit because they empower our ability to love in here as the people of God. Verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory." Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, 
seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, just being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let's, let's pray together. Oh Lord, we have come in to this gathering. We are watching in this moment with just a great deal of turmoil and concerns, fears, struggles, frustrations. Lord, the world has once again informed us is not seeking to live for your glory, does not want your kingdom to come. And we are not in heaven. But Lord, we are in this moment, we are here in this moment. We are people called by you in this moment. And God, you introduce this word love to your people and to the world. God, help us to get this love story. Today, Lord, help us to see it among us. As we look in these words in Jesus' name, amen. So this is a pretty, uh, pretty lofty goal here. Compassion and kindness and patience and forgiveness set amongst the people. You'd be hard-pressed to feel like, is that even doable? But when Paul says this, I don't know if you realize, sometimes we come to the Bible and we we think the Bible's written in ways that it's actually not written. Um, And this sounds weird for hearing me say this, but the Bible's not written to the world. Although it's written to influence and for the world to come to understand something through it. The Bible is written to an audience. So it assumes certain things about that audience. So this is not an op-ed piece that Paul took out in the Colossian times for everybody who lived in Colos. Hey, this is how we do this. This is how everybody gets along. This is not a Twitter feed that he decides to go public with. This is a letter written to a group of people like our church who are defined by a relationship with Jesus Christ and certain things are true about them. Therefore, these things can be written to them. And certain expectations can come with that letter. That's who the audience is here. And it's also the audience for us today. And there's some things in this, right? I want us to make sure this is what we're doing. We're we're on our way to loving one another. That's what we're on our way to. But we're going to need to pick some things up along the way. Because look out at the world and quite honestly, look within the church and you will find sometimes loving one another is a little hard. 
So apparently we're going to need some help to get there. And where does Paul start with this help? Well, strangely, he starts by talking about death. I'll give him verse 3. You, you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Right, so I want to get you to this place where you're going to put on love, but let me start back here. Let me start by informing you about something about yourself. You have died. Right, you, you were existing before a moment. You had a personality. You had an identity. There were things that went into making you who you are. You had family. You grew up geographically. You had a certain neighborhood that you were in. You went to certain schools. You learned a language. A culture shaped you. All that stuff is a part of you. But you have died. Why, why can Paul turn around and expect this group to be able to actually do this love thing? Well, because you have died. And, and, and not only have you died in an identity sense, but that's brought to you an ability to put things to death. Right, we're going to be invited in this passage to put some things to death. There are things inside of me that if I'm going to break through and love the way this verse is going to call me to in 1 Corinthians 13, I'm going to not only have to have died in my identity, I'm going to also have to become an executioner who goes on the hunt to put some things about me to death. I'm going to have to recognize some things, put them in a crosshair, and pull the trigger on some things about me. It's not in the list there, but I think it could qualify in the evil desires category. If you're in the body of Christ and issues of racism exist in you, you have two aspects of death you're going to need to visit. One, has your identity died when you came to Christ? Or do you still identify with that group that you come from? At such a level that that group defines you. That's the kind of stuff that dies here. And if you've got this attitude that creeps up in you when the issues of race get between you and others, if that's what they're, you're invited by this passage to put something to death, to identify that thing right there needs to die. And it's my business at this point to put it to death. Listen, the hot topic coming in here, and I intentionally am going to speak a good bit on racism this morning. But that's not the only relational breakdown that you've got going on, isn't it? Quite honestly, whether you're black or you're white in here, the, the stuff that's really getting under your skin is a little closer to home. It's your husband or your wife. It's your children who don't talk to you anymore. It's your extended family where things are broken down there, that, that stuff is, is eating you for lunch, isn't it? And so there's a call here for a believer to recognize an ability to love and to overcome things from my past that don't want me to love, don't give me permission to love. I've been hurt. I've been abused. I've been neglected. Somebody took advantage of me. 
I've got a list of reasons why I don't want anything to do with your love. But Paul knows that. So he knows I'm going to stare out at a church and say, hey, love one another. Well, you know, I got a few reasons why I don't want to love that guy. And I don't want to love people like that either. I got some reasons. So Paul starts here with, yeah, I know you got your reasons. So can I help you realize something happened to you spiritually that you died and a new identity has come to you in the life of Christ. And now that identity wants to put those issues to death. It wants to kill them so that they no longer own you and you can answer this call to love. That's what's true in here. In here, that's true. I can't go to the street corner out there and stop the guy who happens to just pull up to the red light and require that that be true of him. Unless he's in Christ, that's not true of him. But for everybody who is, it is true. Verse 6 is an interesting verse to interact with in this setting. It's interesting. It's, it's related to our putting on love. Verse 6, on account of these, right? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. It is coming. It's on its way. It has a set time where it is going to come. The divine judgment and justice for all sins is going to come. Listen, we're living in a moment where the question of justice is being interacted with. There is a feel that perhaps justice is not going to get done. Perhaps people who abuse power are going to get away with it again. That's what's going to happen. That's what's in our environment, isn't it? And, and, and if you've been a person, and this is where I hope compassion informs the way we relate to others. Maybe you don't feel like the, the injustice done to George Floyd's got anything to do with you and your world. But I'm pretty sure I can reach into your life and find somewhere where injustice exists in a way that, that you don't think that's ever going to be made right. Somebody's going to get away with that. You were raised by somebody who did injustice to you. And they got away with it. Or so you think. Let's all read this carefully. Verse 6 informs these issues. And these issues, if you don't have verse 6, they have the power to turn you upside down and inside out with a sense that, what's the point? The wicked just get away with this kind of stuff. The injustices just keep going on. What's the point? I might as well just give up and despair enters into your soul. And I've talked to numerous of our African-American brothers and sisters who are being tempted in that category right now. Who feel like just another story of the hundreds of stories that they know about. Where somebody that they know or them personally have faced injustice and it was never made right. And the feeling is this ain't going to get made right either. And it's just going to continue on and on and on. You guys who attended the men's retreat 
You remember, we, we studied at the men's retreat, the psalmist's life in Psalm 73. Psalmist begins displaying his walk with God, his love for God, how he was relating to God. But then he starts to tell this story about my feet had almost slipped. And how he lifted his eyes. And what he saw when he lifted his eyes is he saw the wicked and all that they got away with. He saw their way of life that went unopposed. They seem to have rewards. They take advantage of me, us, everybody else. But they get away with it over and over and over again. And he stared at that long enough until it turned him upside down and inside out. His walk with God began to come apart. He says, at one moment, God, I became like a beast toward you. I was so angry. Listen, there's something about... That sense of paralyzing vulnerability to injustice that makes us feel unsafe. And isn't that the greatest feature that God brings to our lives? That, that there's a sense of safety, that God's our father? So how threatening is it when life steps in and seems to pull that and take it away from people? So they stare out at their life and they watch an injustice that could come to them next. They could be next. And they feel that there is no justice, God. There is no justice. It's hard for me to trust you because there is no justice. All right, that is some people's experience, even in this room right now. All right. The psalmist in Psalm 73, he doesn't have Colossians yet to read from, but he's reading from Colossians in this moment. Right, when he turns around in Psalm 73, verse 16, and he says, when I thought, How to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. They will get theirs. He recognized that there was a justice that sat in God that will take place. Will you necessarily live to see human justice in all the sins and offenses? Maybe not. But God guarantees something that in the end, and that's what the psalmist saw. He saw, well, you might be getting away with this temporarily, but in the end, I know, how, I know where this story goes. It goes to stand before God. And in that moment, God's judgment and justice will be sure, and there is nobody who will hide from it. Can I I just promise everybody here, there is not one act of police brutality that we think has gone unobserved, unnoticed, swept under a carpet, never made it to the headlines. There's not one who will not receive complete and full justice and judgment. Not one. Because this verse in verse 6 says, on account of these The wrath of God is coming. Here's the reality. This is not a comfortable reality, quite honestly. There is not and never has been, nor will there ever be, a sin that escapes the wrath of God. Not one. Every sin that has ever been committed is going to face the justice and judgment of the wrath of God. There is not one. 
There is no political organization. There's no power structure. There's no carpet. Somebody can sweep something under and get away with it. Every sin is going to face the judgment of God. This is a strange moment. This is a strange moment. Because amidst a world that's wondering about where's the justice and a world that wants justice to take place, this could almost sound like, hey, all right, I, I, I think I like that. I think I like the way that sounds. Can I say it to you in a way that you probably won't like the way it sounds? On account of these things, on account of these things. This Bible's pointing at something when it says that. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. What are these things? Well, in our world, our, the list of these things in the last five years is the hashtag MeToo movement. The abuse by men in power over women and taking advantage of them. And a few years ago, the world recognized the wrongness of that and took it to task and sought justice for every situation that fits that description. Race has moved in and out of that category. It's in that category right now. Race is one of these things that's been put here to say, you know what? Uh, We in the world recognize that's wrong. That's wrong. To treat people that way on that basis, that is wrong. And we demand justice. And that's not wrong. As a matter of fact, that is Colossians chapter 3, verse 6. Now, the reason and the point where this gets uncomfortable is there are more things than those two things. And some of the other things are on your list. Idolatry was in here. Idolatry. The moment when humanity makes something else besides God more important to them personally. That's idolatry. That's on this list. Sexual immorality is on this list. There is not one act of sexual immorality that will not receive the judgment and justice of God and his wrath will be poured out on it. Now, some of us in this room just sat up and took notice of that. Because some of us know we've been out of bounds in that category. We might dodge the racism thing. We might, ah, that's not me. Huh? I've never treated women that way. So, yeah, I'm, I'm going to survive the hashtag me too moment. But these things has a long list of these things. That God's perfect righteous judgment is coming for all of them. All of them. Racism included. So let's not anybody for a second think that somebody's getting away with these hateful acts. No, no. There will be a day in which complete and full judgment and justice for the God who knew everything. He doesn't need a body cam. He knew everything that was in the heart of the people involved and he will bring judgment to that moment and they will not escape justice. But neither will I and neither will you. 
This is where a, a moment where the gospel becomes in, incredibly clarifying. When we stand back and wonder, hey, what was up with that Jesus coming to earth? What, what was that all about? And why did he go to a cross? What, what, what was that all about? Well, it was about chapter 3, verse 6, that on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming and you will not stop it and it will come. And it will find every sin. It will be poured out and it will travel to every sin. And it will bring judgment on the person attached to every sin, every one of them. Now the question is, when God pours that wrath out, which direction does it go in? Does it go and find you in whatever year you stand before the throne of God and the judgment of God finds you in that moment with your list of these things? Or does it go and find Jesus Christ on the cross for you where these things were placed on him and the wrath and justice and judgment that you and I deserve was taken by him? That's the only question. It's not a question of whether sins will be judged. It's a question of where will they be judged? That's a sobering moment, isn't it? That's a sobering understanding of where we are and why the, the gospel is such incredibly good news. And it's humbling news as well. Verse 7 is a humbling, humbling verse. God's wrath is coming on account of these things. Verse 7, in these you too once walked when you were living in them. You too once walked. Remember, we're on our way to love one another. Put on love. That's what we're on our way to. So apparently Paul says, you know, uh, the death thing is a problem. An awareness of the wrath of God coming is a problem. Uh, Hey, another point here you need to be aware of. You're going to need to be aware that you ain't all that hot of stuff. You got your own issues, dude. You might need to be introduced to a little bit of humility along the way about how you got a little body odor yourself on your way to whether or not you're going to love somebody like that, whoever that is. So Paul puts us in touch with something that's extremely humbling. If we're ever going to love each other, we're going to need some humility to be mixed into our humanity in order for that to happen. And pride comes in all kinds of shapes and sizes. Right, we're talking about community here, right? This, this is a community like no other. That's what this aspect of this love story is about. We are a community like no other. So the second there's you plus another person, you have a form of community going on. So whether it's friendship, family, husbands and wives, you've got a form of community going on. How many of you guys have recognized that pride is a community wrecker? Wrecks community. Because pride puts you and your interest and your understanding and your territory at such a feature point that there's no room for anybody else. And you won't make exceptions for them. And that's what's happening all around us. John Piper brings a very interesting insight into this moment about pride in the issue of race. He wrote a book a number of years ago, highly recommend, called Bloodlines, Race, Cross, and the Christian. He says in that book, he says, racial tensions, I could add to that, relational tensions, are rife with pride. The pride of white supremacy, the pride of black power, 
the pride of intellectual analysis, the pride of anti-intellectual scorn, the pride of loud verbal attack, and the pride of despising silence, the pride that feels secure, and the pride that masks fear. Where pride holds sway, there is no hope for the kind of listening and patience and understanding and openness to correction that relationships require. These are required. If I'm going to relate and be in community, I need listening and patience and understanding and openness to correction in order to build community. But pride stands in the way of that. It launches us into settings and into topics driven by our own agendas and thoughts and protecting something about us. I don't think I could sell any of these devices, but if I could invent a device, it might be helpful. You know, when you show up to fly on an airplane, I guess this is true, I haven't flown yet. You know, TSA guys, they, they take that, that little gun thing out and they see what kind of temperature you got going on, right? They kind of shoot that at you to see how hot you are. You know, I think it'd be helpful if, you know, all social media platforms had a device that before you logged in and can use it, a little device would come out and shoot a probe into you to see how prideful you are. And it just locked you out. (laughs) There was too much self-serving, territorial, self-loyalty pride involved. And what you're about to say, you couldn't go on. Now, I realize that would shut these things down completely and no one would speak. But wouldn't wouldn't that be nice? How many of you guys recognize how much content is being driven by self-serving perspective that doesn't want? to be inconvenienced by somebody else. But see, we're in community, right? I'm talking to us right now, right? I'm not talking to the Twitter feed folks. I'm talking to us right now who are called to have a community relationship in the kingdom of God, the kind that we can pull this off, listening and patience, understanding and openness to correction floods the way we do life together because pride isn't controlling us. Piper goes on and says, the gospel of Jesus breaks the power of pride by revealing the magnitude and the ugliness and the deadliness of it, even as it provides deliverance from it. The gospel makes plain that I am so hopelessly sinful and my debt before God was so huge that my salvation required the death of the Son of God in my place. Jesus didn't decide to come because there's racism and sexism. He needed to come die for me with a whole nother set of list of things. I'm humbled by that. Whether I'm guilty of something you think I'm guilty of or not, I, I am totally aware that I'm plenty guilty in lots of categories. Piper says, this is devastating to the human ego, and God means it to be. On our way to love, uh, self-awareness is critical. 
Husbands and wives, is that helpful? A little self-awareness when I go to fix my wife and all the long list of problems that she has that I can't believe have taken this long for her to get right. I'm saying that. I didn't say this in the first service because she was here. (laughs) But it's a long list, long list. I've studied it for years. I cannot believe how long it's taken her to address some of these issues. I am so godly and patient because she doesn't have to put up with any of that from me. I don't know if you're godly and patient, Keith, but you are totally unself-aware, right? I, I need to hear the Bible turn around and say, in these two, Keith, you once walked, and for some of them, still do. That's humbling. Verse 10 calls for something pretty radical and pretty helpful in our quest to love in these moments. He says, put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Put on the new self. All right, this is a limited audience that he is speaking to. He is speaking to people who actually can put on a new self. There's somebody besides you in the equation. There's a new you bound to and regenerated by the Holy Spirit who is now formed in you a new creation. There's something more than all that you used to be and all that you naturally are. There's something more here that can be appealed to. Put this on on your way to try to love one another. I'm going to need something besides me in this moment if I'm going to love you in moments that it's very difficult to do because we're just so different. And you see things so differently than me. And you're so passionate for things that I'm not passionate about. In that moment, I'm going to need some help to be somebody more than what I'm capable of being. But we do recognize you can't go to the street corner today and tell the guy who pulls up, who doesn't know Jesus from the man in the moon, to put on his new self. You do know that, right? He doesn't have a new self to put on. He's only got an old self. And he's going to do life out of that old self. And that old self has got programming in it. And it's got experiences. And he's going to do whatever makes sense to him. He's going to be self-protective and self-preserving. He's going to serve his own idols. He's going to form views that line all that stuff up. That's who he's going to be. Until a new heart comes and a new life comes to him, that's who he's going to be. I hope everybody in here, if you've, if you've had the life of God come to you, you, you have this demarcation line in your life where you notice, oh, I used to, not anymore. I used to, not anymore. Uh, I got saved as a teenager, so my used to list is short, but it's colorful. You would not have wanted to live in my neighborhood growing up, I would have stolen something from you. I started being a thief when I was about 12. I have memories of standing in the front of the grocery store next to a policeman and the manager waiting for my parents to show up because they had caught me stealing. I was 12 or 13. 
They only caught me once. I had only stolen like a hundred times before then. It took them a while to figure out. So as a young teenager, there were rules in place. My heart wasn't all that concerned about what my stealing was doing to you. If you had something that I wanted and I could figure out a way to get it, I would get it. And I never, I don't have a moment for remembrance where I thought, oh, well, that's not kind to this person. I mean, they worked hard and spent their money and bought that thing and put it in their backyard. You should probably just let that stay theirs. For some reason, that just didn't dawn on me. You know what did dawn on me? I like that. I think I'll have that. You know, at 12 or 13, there were no security cameras back then. It was a different world back then. Even idiots like me could figure out how to steal things. But then I got saved. I mean, I got, I got other problems, but I got saved just before I turned 15 years old, probably before I was really breaking into my next career level. And I lost all desire to do that. I n- never wanted to take things from people that weren't mine. That, that's, all of a sudden, that's just wrong. That's... That's not right for them. That's not what God wants for me. It's like all, there was something on the inside of me that was going off and making noise and saying, hey, don't do that, man. Don't do that, man. Right? It was a form of love. I was actually learning by the internal work of the Spirit of God to love my neighbor. I was too stupid to figure that out before. I was too self-focused to figure it out before. I had nothing but me to figure it out before, and I couldn't come up with good enough reasons. But when the Spirit of God showed up, I had new reasons. I wanted to be different. I wanted to care for people differently than I had been before. Put on the new self. New motivations come with that that are lacking and missing if this isn't present. John Piper talks about this lack of motivation in his book on race. He says, if there is no hope, right? There's not this internal work of the gospel that comes to us then why would I bother myself with efforts in racial harmony? Why would I care about anybody? If there's no hope, why would I care about your civil rights? Well, I have just a few short years to maximize my pleasure. Then I'll be eaten by worms, and that's that. Hopelessness destroys moral conviction by making it look ludicrous. And therefore, it destroys almost everything that is beautiful and precious. Without the gospel of Jesus, there is, in fact, no hope beyond the grave. This isn't written to people who don't have a hope. This isn't written to people who don't have another person to put on. This is written to believers who have a reason to do life differently here, here. We have motivation toward one another because of something God has put within us here. And in the next verse here, verse 11, Paul wipes out the boundaries. Look at verse 11. Here, he says, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. This infects and informs the things that we're loyal to. 
Right, Because the reason why you would respond to other people based in these labels is because you're loyal to a view. You're loyal to what you come from. And Paul says, wait, wait, wait. You, you can't maintain that loyalty and have a new identity that maintains a different loyalty. And here, we're all in Christ. We share the same identity. We don't make these kinds of distinctions among each other. They do out there. We don't in here. In here, that's why I use that word. Here, there is no. Now listen, that doesn't mean you don't have history in these categories. It doesn't mean you didn't learn some things and and talk a certain way and have some ideas that just continue to come out as you relate. But in your heart, your loyalties are to everybody in Christ. No matter what their color or personality, or education, or style is. In here, it's different than it is out there. But it's not always easy in here. Right? Real quick sidebar here. James chapter 2. Turn to James chapter 2 with me real quick. I'm just going to look at a couple things here. James describes his own day when this became rather difficult. In the church, this is James talking to the church about the difficulties they're having with each other in these categories. He begins chapter 2, verse 1. He says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, hey, well, you oh, come over here. You sit in a good place. Well, you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down here at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him. But you dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? Hey, he came in here to get away from that. He came in this place so he wouldn't have to be treated that way. He can go out there with the power brokers who use people for their own end and be treated that way. But if he comes in here, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? You're playing according to these rules that are out there? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. You show partiality. James looked into the church and said, hey, hey, you know this love thing? 1 Corinthians 13, Colossians 3, you know that love thing we're called to? If you show partiality, you're messing that up. If you make distinctions to where people got to be in a certain profile or accomplish a certain thing or have a certain style, once they have that, then you're going to ingratiate yourself toward them. No, 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 you're actually sinning. 
by the way you're walking that out. No partiality. When love is at work amongst the people of God, there, there is no partiality, right? I think I wrote this in your outline. Territorialism and misplaced loyalties have been so set aside that you cannot tempt me to try and be in with one segment and exclude another. That's what we're doing when we show partiality. I want to be in with you. There's something about you that you bring something to my life. You empower me a certain way or you just like me so it's easier to relate to you. I don't want to put forth the effort to be doing that to somebody who's not like me. Different color, different background. I don't understand them. So that's really hard. I don't know how to have a conversation with that. So I move away. from. I show partiality. Love doesn't do that. Love says, hey, that's hard. But I do hard stuff because I love people. I can get around you even though I don't, I don't even understand you. Paying attention and making distinctives. Next week, I'm going to unpack a little farther just into 1 Corinthians 13, what, what some of the issues that they were facing. But, you know, race may not be your issue. Other things may be your issue when people walk through the door. When people come into your sphere. Um, pretty people. People like you. People of your generation, people with your socioeconomic background, people dressed like you, people who live in a similar neighborhood to yours. But all these things can become things we just kind of get comfortable with that, and therefore we show partiality. And there could be some people who come into this place and feel like the poor guy who came in. Ain't nobody paying attention to him. He can sit in the chair over there. He's never included in a group. There's, you know, there are groups, right? We group off. He's never a part of a group. God says, hey, in here, let's have none of that. That's not what you're called to be. That's not what those people out there who are killing each other and burning each other up need when they come in here. They can get that out there. They don't need to taste that when they come to be a part of this place. Here, you come, you come sit up here in the front. You look like you're somebody. While you... You can go sit in the back of the bus. Does that sound familiar? That didn't start in the 20th century. That goes all the way back to the first century of the Bible. People segregating over how much money and power and influence you have in the culture. You get the honorable seat or you get the back of the bus. And then... James does the same thing Paul does. He provides a motivation. Why is it different in here? Listen, he says, verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those? Has not God chosen these? Look at that person right there. Why treat them anyway? Right, wrong, interested, not. Why do anything? Because God has chosen them. God chose that person. They're standing in front of you. They got all kinds of things that you can't relate to, you don't like. But God has chosen them. Does that outweigh everything else for us? Listen, brothers. God chose them. So with all the noise that's going on, with all the sides to be on right now, somebody of a different color enters your world. Listen. Brothers, God chose that one. That's why I'm going to treat them a certain way. 
Because God chose that one. Listen, this is not just a black-white issue right now. This is an ethnic issue that shows up in multiple places. How would you like to be an Asian American right now? Right? When, you, when you see an Asian, you look across the auditorium, you see somebody who's Asian. Do, do you think Wuhan? Do you think Wuhan warfare, Chinese trade policies, those people? I mean, does that, is that what comes to mind? You, you know, all this bad stuff that's happening, we're having to live in and sort through it because those, those people. Or do you look at that person and you go, God has chosen. Come here. You are, you are a part of mine because God has chosen. Like God has been adding in our midst African Americans, Asian Americans, Latino Americans, increasing numbers in our midst. I'm so thankful for that. Yeah, amen. When you look at a Latino, again, there's noise out there, right? What do you hear? There's, well, there's noise. It's been informing me for weeks. I, I'm, I'm wondering, did he climb over the wall? Is he here illegally? Does he speak English? Is he here to wreck my culture so that the American culture I've been a part of all these years turns Mexican? Is that what's going to happen here? Why don't you speak the language, man? We speak English here. Is that, is that what comes to mind? It is if you're on Twitter too much and you're watching the wrong news channels. That's what comes to mind. But here, brothers, when that person walks in here, they don't need that in here. In here, God has chosen. That's what defines my relationship with you. God has chosen you. Listen, this happens, and it's been happening in the segments of our church for years and years. The story, these are real stories, by the way. Woman gets saved. Young woman gets saved. Comes into this church. She's only been saved a few weeks. Maybe I think it's her first time coming to church. She doesn't know how to play in here. She doesn't know the rules. She doesn't know the lingo. She doesn't know how to dress. And she shows up here dressed immodestly. And day one, she gets corrected for it. She came in here thinking... I met Jesus, and these are Jesus' people, and they're going to they're gonna love me, and they're going to be a part of my life. No, no, no. We're going to need to check the box of modesty first before you're going to experience any of that. What about the fact that God has just chosen? All right, she's got a ways to go. She's going to grow. What about that? how hard it is and awkward it is for years and years. This is years. I, I can't even go back because my whole life being in a church. How hard it is to be a teenager or a young adult who's trying to figure out their faith in this place. Because you're not allowed to, to, to act out, to make mistakes, to color outside the lines, to misbehave. And do you know why that is for most of us, especially those of us who have kids who are amongst these kids? Because I'm raising children, and I raise children in this church, and I'm raising children, and I'm scared to death that when your children screw up, they're going to screw up my children. 
And so you bring your children who all of a sudden decide to color outside the lines, use a few words that I don't like, uh, express some ideas that I'm not comfortable with. And I get very, very, very uncomfortable with that. And I withdraw from you. And I go over here and I take my kids and I go over here to protect myself from that. All right, a bunch of things need to be discussed in that moment. I just want you to see one thing. Can you imagine being that child in this place? when they finally get their head screwed on, right, and they turn 24, 28, whenever that season comes back, and they look back at a church, and they said, where the hell were you? When I wasn't so easy to like, where were you? You didn't love me then. Listen, is this what we're building here? place where people got to become likable to us before we will love them. It's a messy job being in the body of Christ. We don't get to have our preferences. We get to be around people who are in different places than us, who are going to present their troubles and their background and their hardships. And Paul's going to call us to love them. And then James is going to tell us, and if you show partiality, you are sinning. Let me just finish with this last thought from Tim Keller. We're living in a moment that's complex. A lot of things can be done in this moment. And as I said, my three would be a lot of prayer, a lot of turning this place into a place where you can come in from out there and experience a community that loves like no other community. Social justice would be a category as well. But on our way to any of these, this insight from Tim Keller about doing community and understanding these issues is informed theologically. In his book on walking with God through pain and suffering, Tim says, when we confront suffering, we think that what will solve it is a change in public policy or the best expertise in psychology and therapy or technological advances. But the world's darkness is too deep to be dispelled merely by such things. It is wrong in our pride to believe that we can control and defeat the darkness with our knowledge. Most of the time, we do not admit how dark the world is. But when events like 9-11 or the Newton Massacre or, or George Floyd's death happen, that fact presses down on us almost intolerably. And we, we should not be passive in the face of disasters and tragedies. If a change in public policy would prevent a particular form of the darkness from happening again, we should, by all means, do whatever it takes. And yet, it is crucial to realize at the same time that such measures will never be enough. Pain and evil in this world are pervasive and deep and have spiritual roots. They cannot be completely reduced to empirical causes that can be isolated and entirely eliminated. 
as Hamlet said, there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Oh, the debates that are happening out there are missing an entire set of information. It's like, you know, somebody gave you an Encyclopedia Britannica and it's missing more than half. And you're going to base your argument on what's there. You don't have the whole story. We do. We know something that the world doesn't know. And we don't know our version very fully. Perhaps even more to the point is a line in Tolkien's novel, The Lord of the Rings. Always after defeat and respite, evil takes another shape and grows again. No matter what we do, human suffering and evil can't be eradicated. Even when you put all your force into it, it just takes another form and grows in some new way. If we are to face it, it takes more than earthly resources. I'm not hearing that out there. But they're not in here. They're out there. And here's the radical good news. Kurt, you can come back up here. In here, we do have more than earthly resources in here. We're not out there. We have all that this passage in Colossians educated us about having. We have 12 chapters of 1 Corinthians on our way to love. In here, we have an ability to love one another that they don't have out there. It's why we are light in the world. You don't stand at the street corner and tell the people passing to be light. No, no, we're the light. They don't have any light. But we do. And what needs to be gleaming, what needs to be piercing out these windows is a love that looks like these pages in this place. A community like no other where people can come into this place and experience something that they don't experience out there. But they do experience it in here. And the very greatest thing that we could do is be light and be salt in these ways. And we might have to move all the way through the 13 passages and the 12 chapters that come before put on love to get here. There may be some things. There may be some things in you and in me that need to be put to death in order for me to take the risk of loving people this way. If I don't ever figure out what those are, I'll just think I'm living in love and never really understand. If that thing stays alive, you are not living in love. You will be as partial and you will be as self-protective as anybody's going to ever be because that thing is still alive in you and you don't know why it is that you won't venture outside that box and love the way this passage calls us to love that we're about to learn. So here's where I want us to start. In the light of what's happening here, I, I think I hear a lot of discussion that lacks theological content. Hopefully, what we've looked at today is helpful for this moment. It launches us into this moment. But one of the things that will launch us is the community that we're building right here together. In here, it's just not like it is out there. Let's stand up together.
above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Well, it's exactly what Paul is going to say to the Corinthians as well as he said it to the Colossians. He looked into settings of community, aware that some would be wrestling with their background, Greek or Jew, slave or free, barbarian, Scythian, lower class, looked down upon, wear these clothes and not those, live over here but not over there. what made Paul, I think, raise his voice to the Corinthians when he found out some of them showed up for communion early. The shop owners and the wealthy people, they ate everything. They hung out with each other. And then they put the others in the other chamber and treated them differently. Lord, I hate that I'm a human being with reasons within me to not want to do this. Reasons dipped in fear. Reasons dipped in hatred. Reasons dipped in ambition. God, we got our reasons. We don't want to love this way. But what a love story you have exposed our lives to. What a love story you have called us to bring into these settings. Lord, I don't know how to fix everything that's in the world. I'm pretty sure theologically I I can't, and I'm not even called to. But I know what we do in here is supposed to happen. You said it like it's supposed to happen. You didn't say much was supposed to happen out there, but you said these things were supposed to happen in here. God, I don't think there's a day coming anytime soon where all of a sudden racial issues and ethnic diversity is going to all of a sudden just find a way to get along. Everybody's just going to have a heart for each other and love each other except in here. So Lord, whether we're 10 years of new stories and new chapters, hatred based on skin color, Lord, may we be 10 years of gleaming light of a people who love in a way that's just radically different. Lord, if they don't get anything else about us, Let them drive by. Let them look at our lives. Let them see something here that says those people are different. I was was in a meeting one time that they were in. It was different. They didn't even know me. Treated me like I mattered. That's a love story, God. That's an amazing love story. 
Our world is desperate to read that love story, God. Would you help us to tell it? Would you help us to be the narrators and the storytellers of that kind of love? Right now here in the summer of 2020, for months to come, years to come, as long as you have us here, a love story that found us, Lord, we want to now tell it to the world. And help us to start by telling it to each other. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Love you guys. Thank you, guys at home. Thank you for joining us today. If you want to be here next week, you can just go online and register and join us. We had lots of folks in both services, but we've got some room, I'm sure. Just go register and please come join us. We are praying for you and we love you and we'll see you next week.